Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cathedral of St. James podcast. My name is Stephen Slaybaugh, and I serve as the Director of Faith Formation at the Cathedral. The conversation you're about to listen to was led by Sheila Rahman McCabe on the topic of the English Reformation and English nationalism. Sheila is a doctoral student in English at the University of Notre Dame. The conversation was part of our winter 2022 series on the English Reformation. During this series, we are discussing the causes and continuing legacy of the English Reformation. During the series, we're taking a look at important political and religious figures, the role of nationalism in the English Reformation, and the origins of the Book of Common Prayer. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. Um, my name is Sheila uh, Raman McCabe, um, and um, I'm going to be talking about uh, the English Reformation and English nationalism. Um, so, just um, full disclosure that oh, I see we got something in the chat. Um, uh, full disclosure: I'm not an expert on the Reformation, um, but I do look at um, parts of the Reformation, um, and especially. Um, how they looked back at the past um, as part of my research. Uh, so that's what I'm gonna be talking about today. But as far as like wider questions about the Reformation, I'll try to answer as best I can, but I can't guarantee that I'll know things. Um, okay, so um, one of the things that we talked about last week is one of the causes for um, the Reformation uh, were the people around um, King Henry. Um, so there was a group of elite people um, who seem to have been guiding in a lot of ways uh, parts of the Reformation. Um, and so we're going to be talking a little bit more about that today and some of the other uh, main people. Um, let me see if my PowerPoint works. But first, we're going to talk about uh, the early English church. Um, and by early English, I mean the years 600 to 1000. Um, and you might be thinking, why are we talking about that? I'm at least 500 years off. Um, <laughs> But um, the truth is a lot of the people who were making these arguments um, about theology uh, for the Reformation were looking at the early English church. Um, there was a huge revitalization of interest um, in um, Anglo-Saxon England. Um, and so that informed a lot of what they had to say. Um, so why is the Engli early English church relevant? Um, the Reformation coincided with a rediscovery of early English materials. So for a long time, um, we lost the ability to read Old English. So Old English is a lot, looks a lot more like German than it does modern English. Um, and uh, even though a lot of the stories from the Old English period like carried over through like oral culture and cultural memory, like we couldn't read the materials. Um, but during this time, uh, people were discovering how, um, because there was a revitalization of um, a lot of people reading Latin uh, for scholarship, um, they were using Latin glosses um, from the Old English period to try to decipher the Old English language. Um, and so a lot of scholars and what we call antiquarians, which are people who collected stuff uh, from this period um, and collected information about this period, were interested in the early English history and culture. And a lot of those people were the, uh, the movers and shakers of the Reformation as well. Um, manuscripts from this period were also created and held by monasteries. Uh, so much of the Old English corpus, um, the literature and writings are religious. Um, even the stuff that isn't like sermons, um, 
stuff that's being written by uh, like the official church, um, a lot of it has an interest in um, in religious things. They actually translated the gospels into old English, uh, the first six books of the Bible into old English. Um, and then a lot of the poetry is actually retellings of biblical stories like Judith, Genesis, Exodus, Daniel. Uh, those are all like really big old English poems. Um, theology and liturgical practice were often debated due to conflicts between the English uh, Christianity and Celtic Christianity. And here's the great irony that we're gonna see. English Christianity was really Roman, but in the Reformation that became, um, they, they looked back to this period to try to break with Rome. Um, so it's one of the great ironies of history. Um, but um, they were evangelized by um, Augustine, not, not the Augustine, a different Augustine um, in 597, whereas um, the Brits who were there before um, as part of the Roman empire, uh, practice a slightly different kind of Christianity. And so there were lots of conflicts and they were always debating and writing things. Um, so um, that's a lot of the material that these people in the Reformation are looking at. Um, and then uh, the line between political history and ecclesiastical history is often blurred by virtue of what our main sources are for that period. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about these. Uh, the main sources are Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Also, if anybody has a question, please stop me. Um, I have discussion questions at the end, but a lot of this is just um, information. Um, but if anybody has any questions, uh, please let me know. Um, so the most important source that we have from this period is Bede's work. Um, so a lot of people uh, may have heard of Bede. Um, we really like him in the English church. Um, so he was an English Benedictine monk um, in Northumbria um, in the seventh and eighth century. Um, and his big book that he wrote, he wrote a lot of things, but the big thing is the ecclesiastical history of the English people. It's one of the only sources of English history from this period. So almost everything that we know, especially from the very early um, Anglo-Saxon period, uh, like from the migration forward and even like pre-migration stuff uh, comes from Bede. Um, and a lot of what he's interested in is the founding of what he calls the English church. Um, and talking about how, you know, the, the Celts are doing it wrong. And um, the, the big thing was like, when do you have Easter? Um, and so there was a lot of debate about that. Um, so it, Bede was actually treated as really faithful history for many years, like people didn't want to question Bede, um, but it was eventually acknowledged that as with all history, his account uh, contains some bias um, and that we shouldn't necessarily trust everything that he says with at face value. Um, especially because he intended this history for instruction so that, as he says, the thoughtful listener is spurred on to imitate the good. Mm -hmm. So Bede isn't going to say anything bad about the English kings. He's not going to say anything bad about the English church um, unless it was later corrected. Um, he's only going to be talking about, you know, this is what it is to be a good king and a good Christian. And, you know, hopefully readers are going to imitate that. Um, the second thing that a lot of uh, Reformation people were interested in was King Alfred, um, who some of you may have heard of. Um, I, I think he was a character in the show, The Vikings. Um, he's a, a really popular historical figure in England. Um, he was, um, he's seen as kind of like the one who was victorious against the Vikings um, and the Norse invaders. Um, and so he's valorized for that. 
Um, also the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, which is this really remarkable historical document that was written in vernacular English, um, or the first what we call recension is from this period. So our earliest copy dates back to his reign. Um, and so um, it's just during his period, we see a lot more interest in history um, as well. He's known for his translation program. I say his in quotation marks. Um, there's a lot of evidence that he didn't actually translate anything himself, but we still call them Alfred's translations um, and his educational reform. Um, so according to him, um, again, this could all be rhetoric, but according to him, education uh, had really declined um, in the period before his reign. Uh, people couldn't read Latin and they couldn't even read English. Um, and by people, I mean, he mostly means like the wealthy, not not regular people. Um, and so he had this translation program, he ordered it so that um, like really important Latin books, what he, what he called the books most needful for men to know um, would be translated into English so that that would then facilitate more people being able to read in English and then hopefully go on to Latin after that. Um, so like Bede's work was translated during this time. Um, and actually that translation is really interesting because while Bede is using a lot of Latin sources, the old English version actually recenters it a lot to be much more focused on England um, rather than um, what are, what are his years, Alfred? Again, oh, sure. I know you probably said this. Uh, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. Uh, he's ninth century. I don't remember okay. the exact years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, late late ninth, ninth okay. century. Um, and um, and he also um, a lot of religious works are translated, like uh, Pope Gregory's Pastoral Care. Um, and so again, like there's this interest in um, like English religion and and how to be a good English Christian. Um, he was considered the main force that united early England. Uh, a lot of people say that Alfred united Anglo-Saxon England. This was likely just a lot of rhetoric um, on Alfred's part. Um, we, we don't know that it was actually successful, but we know that he wanted to be seen as like the king of all England rather than individual kingdoms within England. Um, and he was really venerated by later history. Um, like through the middle English period, um, the sayings of Alfred were very popular. And especially during the early modern period, um, in the Reformation, we can talk about a cult of Alfred. People, people loved him um, and, and thought he was like the ideal Englishman. So that's all a lot of background um, for, for what's going on in the Reformation. Um, it, it can't be overstated how much people really went back to this period in terms of um, their theological arguments and their political arguments. Um, and they were trying to form really a national church, an English church. Um, so one of the things that led to this um, and led to a lot of people um, who were elites having these books in the first place was the dissolution of the monasteries. So this was enacted under Henry VIII um, in several stages over the years 1536 to 41. Um, so it basically resulted in the end of organized monastic life. Um, they, you know, they were interested in taking the land back from monasteries. Um, they wanted to control the religion. Um, so it also led to the breakup of the libraries, where, uh, which is where a lot of the medieval manuscripts were housed. Um, sometimes this process was peaceful. Um, sometimes it wasn't. Um, there were accusations of treason, uh, which resulted in seizure of church properties without compensation. And occasionally there were even hanging of abbots who held out against uh, these laws. Um, 
But what happened to the books is that um, a lot of collectors and antiquarians collected them to save them from loss or destruction. So rather than being held in monasteries and uh, university libraries, um, it, they became like private property of people. Um, and one of the most important people for this was Matthew Parker. Um, so he was Archbishop of Canterbury in 1559 to 1575. Um, he was also chaplain to Anne Boleyn and charged with the spiritual upbringing of Elizabeth. Um, and she's the one who, um, Elizabeth is the one who makes him um, Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, so he's very influential, very close to the royal family. He was actually, um, going back to some of our conversation, Last week, he was against the people reforming the church. Um, so he he really wanted this, and like a lot of the elites at that time, didn't really want it to come from the ground up, like you could see um, in other places. Um, he thought that reform was necessary, but only with uh, the triumph of order over anarchy. Um, so it, it needs to be very much guided by um, people who, according to him, knew like theological um, like had the theological background. Um, he was one of the primary architects of the 39 articles, which is a, in our book of common prayer and which I'm gonna talk about towards the end. Um, he, um, there were a lot of versions before we got to the 39 articles, but he was in charge uh, when um, they came up with that version. Um, and he was a collector and editor of manuscripts and he really laid the foundation for Anglo-Saxon studies. Uh, we wouldn't have that as a discipline uh, without him and the work that he did. Um, and he organized the publishing of several old English texts and translations, uh, which were really influential. Um, so the interest in books was not out of a love of history alone. It's not like he just wanted to save old books out of the goodness of his heart and wanting to preserve history. Um, like many believed that these provided insight on matters of church and state. Um, and so it, it was a very political, um, mission to collect these books and to understand them. Um, and they were often cited for these purposes in formal arguments. Um, and what they were looking for were characteristics of what they thought was a pre-Norman conquest and pre-Lateran four council church that could be the basis for an independent church of England. So the Norman conquest brought in, um, you know, the French um, and, and uh, religion from the continent. Um, and then Latter and Four just kind of universalized a lot of uh, the church. That was in 1215. Um, and so they were really looking for, you know, what is an English church? What can we say is uh, native to our people? Um, I'm just going to escape for a second um, because you can actually look at a bunch of these manuscripts online. Um, so this is the Parker Library on the web. Um, it's still at Corpus Christi College where um, he was. Um, and you can sort, um, and they, they've added to it since um, he's, uh, you know, given the library and, and passed away. But um, a lot of these uh, were ones that he collected and I just searched by Old English and you can see um, this. Um, so Alfred um, had an advisor named Asser who wrote a biography of him. Um, and one of the books that Parker was really um, famous for making available was um, Asser's Life of Alfred. Um, and so this is his preface to it. Um, and it's an early printed book of it. Um, this one oh, um, is the, the Parker Chronicle. So he is the one who had the earliest recension of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. 
um, that belonged to him. And so we call it the Parker Chronicle. And you can see um, it's written in the Old English. Um, I just think looking at manuscripts are fun. Um, and so this is what a chronicle would look like. They've got all of the years written out um, and you can see, um, you know, not every year has information, um, but some of the years they'll put major things that happen. Um, sometimes when kings die, there are actually poems written in the margins. Um, so it's cool. Um, let's see. So that's what they're searching for. They're searching for something that they think is essentially English. Um, and they're searching the manuscripts for these four major points. So the church's independence from the papacy, like that they absolutely needed. Um, they did not want to be connected to Rome at all anymore. Um, the doctrine of transubstantiation, um, they wanted to provide evidence that what they believed was different from the Roman church. Um, the issue of celibacy of the clergy, um, they really wanted priests to be able to get married. Um, mostly to be able to kind of control the domestic life of priests. Um, but the, the real reason. Yes. Um, but uh, that was, yeah. um, but that was another major thing. Um, and then the use of the English language in worship and Christian education, um, which they were obviously for, and that's in line with um, most of the Protestant movement. So manuscripts um, provided really solid evidence for points three and four. Um, it, um, seems very common that in the early English period, uh, clergy were able to marry, um, not always. Um, and I think uh, monks uh, weren't, uh, weren't allowed to marry um, and that extended to priests sometimes, but it's not like there was a prohibition against it. Um, and then the use of the English language, obviously from Alfred's translations and other translations of the gospels and um, the Pentateuch, um, we have um, evidence that you can put the, uh, the scripture into English. But for items one and two, there's really no evidence. Um, and it's actually quite the opposite, right? Because the Anglo-Saxons were obsessed with Rome. Um, they, they really cited that, you know, we have the correct Christianity, um, in quotes, because, um, you know, we're in line with Rome, whereas Celtic Christianity has an earlier form that kind of diverged in the years since they were converted. Um, and so, um, they had to really, um, and, and same with transubstantiation, there was nothing that supported their, um, what, what the reformers wanted uh, for the doctrine of transubstantiation um, in early English texts. And so you'll see that the, through a combination of one, just kind of manipulating the texts um, and, and manipulating evidence, uh, they get around that. And also, I mean, they're, they're only just starting to learn Old English. So sometimes they're just wrong. Uh, which makes sense um, when, when you're trying to reconstruct a language. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's again, one of the great ironies of history. Um, so how did this trickle down into how we practice Anglicanism and how did this influence Anglicanism? Um, well, one thing that um, Parker did was um, he helped create the Bishop's Bible. Um, and so this was undertaken at his request prepared under his supervision and published at his expense. Um, and so um, there were other translations of the Bible before, but they weren't happy with them. They thought that um, because they were translated from the Latin Vulgate, that they weren't as legitimate. Um, so their aim, they didn't quite meet that. Um, their aim was to translate the Bible from the original languages. Um, it, like uh, Scholars have said that the Apocrypha is largely just the same as the Geneva Bible, which is translated from the Vulgate. So they weren't 
entirely successful, but um, they did translate um, most of the Bible from its original languages. But there was no supervisory editor and Parker was too busy to supervise all of the editing himself. So translation practice is very widely from book to book, uh, which is interesting. And also um, most of the books are signed with initials um, of the translator, which Parker thought would um, help with accountability. Like if you attach your name to it, then you're gonna do a good job translating uh, was his uh, theory. Um, it was the basis actually for the King James Bible. Um, so other translations were used in um, creating the, uh, the King James, um, but this was really like the core one, uh, the, the foundation for it. Um, it was more of a pulpit Bible than a domestic one, um, which was in line with what they, they wanted because they really wanted to control the message coming from the pulpit and, and what priests were saying rather than what people were necessarily doing at home. Um, because again, they didn't really want like a people's reform. They wanted it to be top down. Um, and it's not looked upon very favorably in later years, like even um, in like the later 1600s. Um, but it was very influential when, when it was around. Um, like the way I've heard it described is that the King James, but the people who were creating the King James weren't trying to um, like throw that one out and make um, a new one. They were just trying to improve on what was in the Bishop's Bible. Um, so this was very influential to like how, how people received the Bible. Um, and it's all coming from um, the influence by Old English and what they were saying about scripture and how they were translating. Um, and then another thing that we still feel the effects of to this day um, are the 39 articles. Um, so this was really the defining statement of the doctrines and practices of the Church of England. Um, so they're, again, they're in the prayer book. Um, they were incorporated into the prayer book in 1571, and they're still used a lot. Like people um, still go back to those um, when making theological arguments. Um, previous iterations of the doctrine varied widely. So the first one was like very, very close to Roman Catholicism. Then, um, you know, one of the next ones was really, really radically Protestant. Um, the one that I think it was Cranmer did was very Calvinist. Um, and so um, and then uh, once Elizabeth um, instituted uh, Parker as Archbishop, um, they wanted something that was distinctively English. Um, one that um, really like uh, separates itself from the rest of the reform happening across the continent. Um, and one that really provided the via media, like the middle way. Um, so it's a little bit Protestant, a little bit Catholic. Um, so that's really the origin of this. Um, and then the English parliament made adherence to the articles a legal requirement um, for uh, priests, for um, like people who were going to Oxford had to sign a copy of the articles um, if they wanted to um, to learn there. Um, if you wanted to hold public office, you had to adhere to the articles. Um, so again, it, it wasn't just in the church. Um, it was really connected to, to every part of life. Um, and so even though um, Anglo-Saxon England, which that, the reason why I'm focusing on that is because that's what I study. Um, but um, we, we really feel the effects of it um, throughout the Reformation. And it's something that um, we don't necessarily talk about, that it, it was to make something distinctively English. It wasn't just about, um, you know, we don't like Catholicism. Um, it was really connected to these national movements. What is English? 
how do we reflect that in our church and the way we worship? Um, and so that was probably really rapid fire. Um, but um, I have some discussion questions um, just because, again, I think this is something that um, I don't necessarily hear about um, when talking about the Reformation or when thinking about like when I identify myself as an Anglican, how important is Englishness actually Anglicanism? Like it's in the name, but you know, do, do we necessarily think about it, especially when we don't live in England? What does it mean to be Anglican when you're not in England? Um, is there anything essentially English about it? Um, how do you feel about the various political and national agendas that played a part in crafting the core elements of the Anglican church? And does that matter um, to how we practice it today um, or should it? Um, you know, how, how do we grapple with that? Um, and is it possible, um, because especially I was thinking about this, I don't know if any of you all have read um, Stephanie Speller's The Church Cracked Open, we're, we're talking about how to reimagine um, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church. Um, what does it mean to do that when so much of it in, in its origins was tied to what it means to be English? Like, how do we do that? Is it possible to do that? So those are just some of the uh, the things that um, stood out to me, and I was hoping we could have a conversation about it. Um, again, I'm sorry for like the rapid fire like information. Are you able to navigate the uh, the Zoom vote? Like, if, if anyone on there has a question at, at the same time? Yes, um, I think so. Yeah. Um, yes. But um, no. Thank with the, I, I think what's what I've noticed with, um, I mean, I'm a cradle Episcopalian, and uh, my mom was a British war bride, and um, I've noticed and I've always appreciated the phrasing that uh, is used with the English language that I find in the prayer book, and I have not, I have found that here that I have not found in other. Um, uh, services of reading, you know, I've read through like Lutheran and, you know, uh, and uh, Roman, and um, I find some, I find the unique um, English phrasing here. Uh, and I, and I appreciate it probably because I grew up with it, but, uh, you know, so it's familiar. And I, I am aware of that. But also, I just, um, like it anyway. I had um, uh, in um, the the prayer of humble access. Uh, it's I think of the the British understatement that that Cranmer had written, um, provoking most justly by wrath and indignation against us. You know, mm -hmm. to, just imagining God saying, "I am indignant." <laughs> you know, and <laughs> my mother would talk like that whenever she would get you know angry with my brother and me. And, uh, and it, um, uh, so I, I find, um, anyway, anyway, I, I noticed that I noticed that with, um, I, I know that you're, that also you cannot, um, differentiate between religious and political, um, you know, I, ideas going on, but uh, you know, politics and religion was combined up till, you know, up, up to that throughout history, all over the place. You know, uh, you you couldn't get away from it. And um, with uh, when we when the English broke away from 
the Roman church, yeah, there was there was this void, you have to fill it. So if you're not going to do things the Roman way, you have to do it your own way. They have to find their own way. And um, when you're doing that, especially when you're doing that by committee, you know, you're not having one person who's, you know, okay, Fred, you're in charge of this and come back to us when you have something. They're, um, uh, you have a group, a committee, so you're going to have um, a lot of discussion and a lot of, a lot less of this is the way it absolutely is and more of this is the way it, you know, it, it possibly is. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's not until we come to, um, you know, America where we, we have freedom of religion and you can be American and be you know, you, you can be Episcopalian, you can be Jewish, you can be, you know, anything, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And um, I know that we're, with the last one, um, to be Anglican today, where it depends, are you going to say in the terms of Anglo-Catholic, which is um, a little different from if you were in a lower or a broad um, Episcopal Church, things would be different from, let's say, an Anglo-Catholic Church. So, you know, you have those those differences there. And I've read um, the church cracked open, and it uh, um, there she was talking about a lot of racial things that was not an issue when the Anglican Church was being formed. Probably was. Yeah. No, yeah, the the and also the the racial thing come comes into play um with a, a lot of times um Celtic peoples were racialized as so like you were well, English were rather than um it, it yeah. wasn't racial as so much as tribe yeah um but um yeah I, I think that definitely um of course when when people are making a new sect like you're, you're going to um you know have to define it um in certain ways against like other things um i i just always find it interesting that um like it's it's done in a national way right like we have um like lutheranism which is based on like the um you know like a person we have um you know methodist uh with like this is <laughs> right and so this is the but this i think is distinctive in that it's named after a country like and, and a people um and so um and, and it was used a lot like in in later periods for colonialism too right like you're making people into um like Anglicans um, and you're extending the English church. Um, and so I think that that's just what fascinates me about this, but, but you're right, definitely like people are going to have to define themselves when they break away. Yes. I think to me, the very first question, how important is Englishness to Anglicanism? As I was growing up, they were inseparable. Mm -hmm. That uh, if you were in the United States, you were in a Episcopalian. Oh, and you were not an Anglican. Those were across the pond. And anything that England had done to spread the word, well, they could be Anglican, but like in Africa. Mm -hmm. But Episcopalians were 
within the bounds of the United States as I was growing up. Right. And, and um, I, I, not even Canada. Canada would be Anglican still. Um, and so it, as I was growing up, that was inseparable. And then when we had to break our church political reasons or whatever reasons, then Anglican was a place to go which held the same sort of doctrine, if you will. Right. Uh, That's really interesting, though, that it's, you know, we're, we're Episcopalian, like we're not Anglican. And so it's, it almost feels like mimicking this almost in that, like, we're, we're Anglican and not any of that other stuff. And then, but America wants to be different itself. So we're Episcopalian and we're not Anglican. I think that's really fascinating. Now you say you're Anglican, and I know other people that are Anglican. Right. It's fine. Right. Oh, well, but see, I have I have a point in history that, that I can now say. Well, if you had to make a choice, you could no longer be in a Episcopalian, but you wanted, and so there was another place to go. And right. So Anglican churches, they may have always been here. I just didn't know it. Yeah. No. Over issues though, like the ordination. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. So, so it, it became. So it's on always going back to the past, like something yeah. essential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's still the case that the uh, queen or the king is the head of the Church of England, which we are a yeah. part of, you know, yeah. even in our distinctive Episcopal uh, nature. So, I mean, I, as someone who did not grow up Episcopalian, Anglican, I, I feel it very English sometimes, um, mm. especially through the hymns. Oh, yeah. You know, so many of our hymns are, you know, based in that period. And then also the Book of Common Prayer um, at times. And the reading mm -hmm. Stephanie Speller's book, a couple of things that stuck out were, you know, how she was talking about uh, some of the elitism mm -hmm. um, that was derived from the Anglican Church. I mean, it was really, when it came to America, you know, very wealthy, very educated. And some of those things have continued. Um, just the social, what, what, is the, what does it mean socially, culturally to be English? How has that um, come over? It's, I, I definitely see it. Yeah, and I, my mom, like thinking about just like the, the elitism and, and the social part of it, uh, my mom grew up in an era where you would proudly say that you were a wasp, a white oh. Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, and yeah, it's, um, yeah, um, no, but like I had a lot of Episcopal yeah. priests in my yeah. family and they were like, they were proud of being waspy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. which I hate no. saying, um, but um, yeah. it, it was, um, you know, a, a part of the culture and something uh, to be proud of, I guess. But I mean, that's just white supremacy with a different name on it. Uh, but a name attached to the religion too, like, oh, we're, we're Episcopalian, we're, we're Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, so. I'd like to return to that question of language too, which mm -hmm. is one of those more original things that they were looking for in, in establishing this. And I think to Terry's point, I mean, you said 
you don't find the same thing in, in the Lutheran liturgy or the, the Roman liturgy. But I wonder how much of that is the fact that the Book of Common Prayer isn't translated for us. And it's, so it, 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 was, it was written in English and the, the beauty and subtleties of the English language are incorporated into it, which may not come through in a translated German or Roman liturgy. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one thing, it's very easy to be seduced by the beauty of the language in the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, prayer may really do his way, not rather than a prayer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and then sometimes it's hard to push back against some of the things in the Book of Common Prayer just because it is so gorgeous and, and so gorgeously written. And so in that sense, I think the English language is very integral and central. So which they, the common people who were Episcopalians, fearful to pray because they didn't have the language or they didn't know how mm -hmm. to pray. And I know that when you're supposed to pray out loud, if you're about to say the Episcopalian, you've got to remember this. There was a time in our lives that we were just appreciative. We were supposed to, and all of a sudden, it was deathly quiet. <laughs> Casting up the priest, I mean, the priest was like, it was just weird, right? That was, I remember that was a new thing. It was like, I got it canceled, and you know, it was confusing either way because. Why would you want to shake hands with somebody that you were especially close to? It's it's an oddly formal thing to do. And at the same time, do you just shake hands with a stranger that and then you go back to uh, worship worshiping? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that's just an adjustment. Yeah, it was language that that I believe made people fearful of praying because it wasn't good enough. Mm. So it's exactly what you're saying. And yet, the same language mm -hmm. at times was very confident mm -hmm. because what I thought was me when I moved to this time zone, I knew that across the nation, well, especially when we were needed to go to uh, daylight savings time, mm -hmm. at the very same time, my mother and daddy were praying the very same prayer as I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's liturgy and not so much anything to what mm -hmm. we have up there, but. Well, the, the liturgy was determined um, by these same people, too. So, um, yeah, no, that's definitely part of it. Sorry, there was so much good stuff in that conversation that I'm, I'm very excited. Um, just as a side note about the piece, I grew up in a church where it's like you you just turn to your neighbor and you like I would turn to my mother and hug her and then that was it. And actually, St. James was the first place that I came where the peace was like this big thing and everybody was like hugging each other and like moving around. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, so that's very um, that's very Episcopalian to me. Um, and I wonder if that you know. Um, you know, the English have like this stereotype and reputation of being very like reserved. And so I wonder if that's a part of it too. Like that's an Englishness uh, that that we inherited. Um, so yeah, I think the fact that it's not translated, um, I, I hadn't thought about that. It's in our, it was composed in our native language. And so it speaks to us in a, in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think that can be very seductive and that's a really good point. Not, no other, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point. Um, and, and also it, it valorized 
the the language like you're saying Celeste so like we, we think about the beauty of the King James Bible and uh, that language and and also the Book of Common Prayer is so beautiful um, that we kind of we, we almost worship the English language in those things. Um, I, I have a question for all of you. Were you in the Episcopal Church when we had changed from the 28 prayer book and we started using the, because that was a big fat hairy deal to, um, you know, a lot of people. And I, I had, I had time, I had trouble adjusting to that. And I had trouble, I remember saying to, to my priest, how about, you know, if, when we would go from, we praise thee, we worship thee, we, you know, uh, we bless thee, we glorify thee, to say you um, was, uh, I, I found it difficult because it seemed too familiar. And I, I'm addressing God as you instead of thee. Well, and, and he said, it's because we don't want that distance. You know, he had to sit me down and explain that to me. But I remember feeling very uncomfortable because, um, uh, well, for one thing, I was, um, and, you know, I was an early teen, and that was, it just seemed a little too familiar that, you know, something uh, um, I shouldn't be doing at that age. I should be more distant. It's like um, addressing an adult as Bob instead of, you know, Mr. Jones. Um, and then, and the handshaking is, um, oh, especially if I was with other teenagers, you know, at my own age, and like, what, we're going to shake hands with each other? But I was wondering if you all had experienced that with going to the Green Book, you know, services for trial use, and then we went to the, you know, the Zebra Book, you know, the authorized services. I, I, I entered the church. Yeah. Nice to have it all laid out. Kind of funny story about that for me is in my whole family, in my home, we had prayer before meal and after meal, but the prayer was always in silence. Dad was, and we were Dutch. Dad was admitted. Dad was quick as tongue, and that was the end of the prayer. And then we could start to eat. Oh. But it was both praying before and after. But my, but my sister, when she married, she, she married a Christian reform guy. And he, and he, I I but people would pray at a meal and they would be very hostile against repetitive prayers. And every prayer they said was exactly the same. You know, that they, they basically made up a prayer, but it was always the same prayer. So it was repetitive. 
and there wasn't anything related to what's happening right now, like thanks for pork chops or or, <laughs> or, or pray for somebody who's sick. I mean, it was always really the same. So anyway, I, 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 I love the risk prayers and to pray them over and over again. I just, um, I, I want to make sure that, because I don't know if you guys can hear the conversation that's happening around the table here on Zoom, but we're just talking about language and the, um, you know, whether um, the, the response to changing the 28 prayer book. Um, and and I, I actually think that that's interesting that like so many people are resistant to it, because I wonder if is this a part of Anglicanism? Because so much of the Reformation was, okay, well, we want to be a, a, away from the Catholic Church, but not too much. Like, we can't change too much. Yeah. Um, and so that seems like something that is a constant refrain throughout the history of the Anglican or the Episcopal Church. Like, we can change, but not too much. Like, we, we have to stay true to ourselves and, and whatever that means. If I can. Yeah, I, I was just going to say something um, that I thought was very, very interesting. When my parents died, the choice of funeral services is like one, mm -hmm. and what the at the church in which they were buried, what uh, um, they are in their heart. So that was not more off on that kind of decision. But anyway, what what they said is the beauty of the language, and yet there are like two persons that they use that all the time, all the time. Anyway, because of the beauty of the language. And, and that was that was the, the reason they gave. 
Christianity, there's always been this uh, idea that the good news of Christianity is universal, but it can be translated into every culture, language, people group. Um, and there's never been anything wrong with, you know, God speaking to you in your culture and your, you know, uh, through your language. Um, in this case, though, I think, you know, clearly part of the, the problem is that uh, the Anglican Church went into the whole world and said, kind of think, we have it the right way yeah. and they transported a lot of those English cultural social norms right. um, so that people were having trouble saying well what's the difference between this version of Christianity and just like your your social norms or the way your culture operates um, and you know we still have to wrestle with that today um, so I don't you know there's nothing wrong with you know an Anglican and English practice of Christianity um, just like you know anywhere else in the world because God speaks through every culture and language, uh, but you know when you when you start mixing up what's kind of specific to your culture and saying this is how it should be for everyone, that's when it it becomes trickier, stickier, you know. Right. Um, and I, the question it's it's a hard balance, I think, to mm -hmm. also parse out what here is universal to the Christian message and what's what's so essential. Important. What's, what's essential? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just reading up Mark, uh, Mark McIntosh's book on mysteries of faith. And, Mark McIntosh? Yeah. Oh, we got to watch my character. The fluidity and the change and how we are we are living into the mystery of our doctrine, which is quite different than saying, affirming, I believe that God the Father Almighty. No, 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 no. And so what, what the hell does that mean, so to speak? Or, or I believe in Jesus Christ, but what does that mean on the ground? What does that look like? So how do you live into the doctrine rather than just say the words of the doctrine? Right. And mm -hmm. people often fight about the legalistic words, but they're not living and doing so. They're not living into the meaning, or we are. I'm not either when I do that. Um, but that's a whole different right? yeah. way yeah. Of, of seeing that that's what's going on. And things keep moving. Are you understanding the complexities of it all? You know, you know, can't 
Hennigan's and whatever your thoughts so simplistically all at once, but it's not that way at all. It's so complicated. Yeah, I I really appreciate that point because I, I think that that's really um, between what you and, and what Stephen said or is kind of the the way forward, right? Because what what I wanted to bring out was that how much of the the faith tradition that um, we practice was informed by this kind of nationalism and and almost like an English supremacy. Um, but yeah. and when we when we're defending certain things about what um, you know what we keep in the faith and what we change. Um, just being aware of like how much of this is a cultural thing and, and like you said how much of it is living into what what we actually believe um, and i think that's where we we find the anglican resistance to change is that we hold on to so much of the cultural rather than than thinking about the living into it and i don't know how to do that because i i i'm also an anglican stereotype and an episcopal <laughs> stereotype like i like a lot of like traditional things and um you know well we've always done it this way i even like sitting in the same pew every week um but, um, but how much of that is essential to the faith and how much of that is just um things that we're not even aware of their histories like carrying over into what we you do you know how many episcopalians it takes to change a light bulb Change is the answer. Yeah. Italians don't change. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I've heard that before. All the time. <laughs> I know. All the time. It's like we have to. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, or they're very resistant to it. Like, you know, the church has something to do with that. Should we give these folks one last, uh, one, one last chance? Yes. We have about five minutes left. Um, if anyone sure. virtual. Yes. Um, I'm sorry if I've excluded yeah. you at all. No, this is Andy. I had a question. Um, again, I didn't grow up Episcopalian. So my understanding is that there are differences maybe in the Book of Common Prayer between each Anglican community is community or, you know, like, for example, New Zealand may have their own book and things. I mean, how much is there between them? It, it means it kind of follow the same order of service. And then there's just changes in the actual language and what's used. Just curious. I, I happened to have a, a copy of that and um, they have uh, pages alternating with English and Aborigine oh. and they have particular prayers in there that we don't have in the American church for instance they have a prayer for Mothering Sunday which is an English um, holiday we don't celebrate it here um, except in the church that my mother you know uh, my mother and my, family, my mother brought it to this country and we have it in a couple of churches back east uh, but they have a, a prayer for Mothering Sunday on uh, which is in the midpoint of Lent and uh, you know they also call it Rose Sunday because that's when the vestments might change from you know the purple to you know to the rose right. but it is a refreshment Sunday is another term for it but I when I was going through the book I found that and um, I thought, yeah, you won't have that in the American church. Um, but they, you know, but they, they have it there. They have some beautiful prayers in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Un unfortunately, I'm not um, super familiar with all of the different um, prayer books. Um, I wish I was. I, I also have some experience with the, the New Zealand one. Um, and um, I have seen um, that they do incorporate um, a lot of um, aspects of Maori culture and um, like Maori prayers, um, but uh, I'm not an expert on on the Book of Common Prayer, I, um, and so I don't know how those 
those changes are approved or or anything like that. But I think that that would be really interesting to see, um, like to compare a bunch of them um, and see how they're different. Um, because I think that also gets at this question of what is Anglican, like if they're still um, like identifying with the Anglican church, but they're bringing in aspects of culture, um, like how does that work? Um, I think that, um, I know that I'm blinded by my own like Anglo-American experience of what the Anglican church is. And so I think it would probably be to all of our benefit to look at, you know, how this, like our faith is practiced in other parts of the world. Um, so thank you for that question. I think that's important, but unfortunately I can't speak to it much. I'm sorry. Uh, Andrew, do you um, attend physically on Sunday or are you strictly a, um, a Zoom worshiper at this point? Seems to me it depends on the Sunday. <laughs> because, it's been a little uh, while. We, we, we've had a heck of a month. So we, we, we attended Christmas and then it's been kind of crazy since then, so. I, uh, I only brought it up because I what I could do is I could go home and copy out a couple of prayers and then if you were to come next Sunday or some Sunday, I could, you know, I could just give them to you. They're, um, they have a beautiful compliment uh, that has some really nice prayers mm -hmm. in it. Um, and uh, there's a noonday prayer that's poetry. It's, it's very calming. Um, or if you want to share it with me, I could share it with the group as well. Um, either way, but yeah, that's that'd be helpful. Yeah, I think I actually came across it on you know Facebook or something, and I clicked on. I, I think you can get uh, most, if not all, their Book of Common Prayer online. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I had bought one at. Um, I was at diocesan convention years ago, and I got it. I'm glad I did. Um, Every country uh, does their own prayer book and there's similarities and differences. I, I think the overall focus is the same. The overall spirit is the same, but there's lots of differences too. Yeah. It is 10.15, so we're okay. going to uh, be done, but thank you everyone for coming. Um, this has been wonderful. Sure. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much.